Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, this is Rabbi Daniel Karapkin, and we're going to be beginning in just a moment our discussion of Morin Vuchim. Let me press the record button. Okay, so um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Daniel Karapkin. I am speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario, uh, the Bayit, Beth Avram Yosef of Toronto. This is webyeshiva.org, um, the platform where, we'll, we, where we are studying Morena Vuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. We are currently in the middle of Chapter 71 of the first section of Morena Vuchim, and uh, uh, we are using the Pines edition. Uh, uh, and so if you just wanted to know where we are, we are on page 179. Uh, and uh, I just want to bring us to where we had uh, left off in the middle of the chapter last week, which is that the Rambam has been engaging in a, um, in a presentation of a group of philosophers of his time known as the Mutakalimun. They are religious uh, philosophers theologians who try to integrate philosoph philosophical argumentation to prove certain principles which they believe to be true based on their faith, whether these people are Jews or Muslims or Christians. And the Rambam has a, a problem with them because in the course of their um, um, rigorous defense of their faith-based claims, they have put some of the claims of Aristotelian philosophy to the side, and they feel that they have effectively disputed Aristotelian philosophy, when in reality the Rambam feels that they have not. Um, and to, um, to sum up the attitude of the Rambam, he quotes in this very small paragraph in the middle of page 179, a statement by the ancient Greek philosopher Themistius, uh, who states, that which exists that that which exists does not conform to various opinions, but rather the correct opinions conform to that which exists. In essence, whenever a philosopher is confronted with a belief that he had been instructed about from the past, and that belief contradicts scientific reality, what he knows to be true either philosophically or scientifically proven, then his belief has to conform to the reality that has been proven and not the other way around. And the Mutakalimun have erred in trying to redefine reality instead of trying to redefine their theological principles that they had been working with all along. And the Rambam is of the attitude that I take the completely opposite approach. When I encounter Aristotelian science and philosophy, and the difference between science and philosophy, by the way, those two words is a little bit gray, so we're not gonna, we're gonna leave those sort of, inter, we'll use them interchangeably. When I encounter a scientific reality 
based on Aristotelian logic, I will accept that as a given premise of truth. And if I encounter something in my faith that runs counter to that, then I will have to either reinterpret, reinterpret my faith, or when it's completely impossible to reinterpret my faith, only then will I come back to Aristotelian argumentation and make a determination whether it's possible that Aristotle perhaps overstepped his boundaries and extrapolated about something that was not completely proven. Okay? And that's really ultimately the attitude or the, the approach that the Rambam is taking. So we're up to here on page 179, and because it's a lot of text, I'm going to paraphrase the text for us. Um, the, uh, basically, the Rambam writes over here that, first of all, I want to uh, allay any of your concerns that I am not treating the texts of the Mutakalimun, this, this group of religious philosophers with whom I am, I am disputing, I am not treating them lightly. I have studied the Kalamic texts as deeply and as thoroughly as I have studied the Aristotelian texts. And that's the first thing. And the Rambam points out that these Mutakalimun have made two flaws. And the first flaw is based on something which he's going to elaborate upon in a couple of chapters from now in chapter 73. And I'll get into that a little bit shortly. But basically the Rambam uh, says that these Kalamists feel that the way that Aristotle and the, the philosophical community in general have defined reality is not necessarily accurate. And their way of framing reality could be framed just as easily in a different way to be completely in sync with their religious beliefs. That's the first thing that they've made a mistake about is that they feel that you can redefine um, uh, what we call nature. You can redefine scientific principles that they can conform to our, our, that which we know to be true from our holy books. That's the first mistake that they make. And the second mistake that they make is that they do not use the discipline of intellectual uh, philosophizing in the correct way. And the Rambam points out, and we've seen the Rambam mention this before, that the Rambam feels that using one's imagination or that segment of, one mind, of one's mind where you can conjure up images that are not real is not the way of the philosopher. The philosopher is supposed to divest himself of any false images and is supposed to base his conclusions purely on logic, what he calls the, the, the faculty of the intellect and not the faculty of the imagination. And these Kalamists are making a mistake by using their faculty of imagination to create all different kinds, uh, to conjure all kinds of fantastical structures and images in their mind that, will, that they believe are effective in combating Aristotelian philosophy. So he says, that based on that, the way of the Mutakalimun is to create as their first premise that, that there was a creation at some point in time. And the Rambam feels that if that is the premise of your philosophy of God, that you, your starting point is, is that there was a creation. And because there was a creation, we can make certain conclusions about God the Rambam feels that that is a mistaken way of approaching a, any kind of philosophy of God. And I just want to be able, to, maybe what I'll do is I'll share with you 
my screen to give you sort of an image of the, the Rambam's use of this kind of logic. So if you just take a look over here, just at these at these first, where it says the Mutakalimun versus the Aristotelians, the Mutakalimun take the approach that the foundation of any kind of philosophy that we're going to arrive at about God, about the truth about God, is based on the fact that we note that at one point in history there was a creation. How do we know that? They, their claim is we know that from our religious texts, and we can extrapolate that based on observation. Once we take it as a given that there is that there was at one time a creation, then this leads to the conclusion that there was a creator. Someone must have brought all of that which was created into existence, and we call that being a creator. They then extrapolate and using logic basically argue that the creator must be a unitary creator. And from there they conclude that that unitary creator by the definition of his unitariness must also be non-corporeal or incorporeal, must be completely outside of the physical realm of existence. Like we've been talking about all along in the Rambam's definition of God as being non-corporeal. By contrast, the Aristotelian philosophers do not accept the premise of there having been a creation at some point. They rather believe that the universe has existed eternally because they feel that any major departure from the laws of physics is illogical, that there was no point in, in time where things so dramatically changed. What could have been the catalyst for causing that change? So Aristotelians believe in the static nature of nature. They believe that uh, the laws of physics are static, and as a result, it doesn't make sense to suggest that at some time, at some point in time, there was nothing, and then at one point in time, there was this major shift in, in all that exists, and nothing turned into something. And therefore, their conclusion is that there was no point of creation. That's really what Aristotle maintains. And the Rambam's position is that I can just as easily prove the existence of a deity, even if I work with the premise of Aristotle. It's not that I believe that the universe has always existed. After all, the Torah tells us, Bereshit bara Elohim, that in the beginning God created heaven and earth. So I believe in our tradition that there was a creation. My, my point of contention with the Mutakalimun is that if you make that your foundational premise, then you are building your whole logical structure of concluding that there's a God on something that is in itself not provable. There is no way to philosophically prove that there was a creation because to wit, Aristotelians believe that there was never a creation. And if you're going to be basing your definition and understanding of God and your proof of God's existence based on creation, then you are on a very flimsy foundation which can easily be disproved using logic. And therefore, what I am going to set out to do, says the Rambam, is to prove to you that God exists, but not based on the fact that there was a creation, but rather that I will use the Aristotelian terminology that God is a prime mover. And I will prove that such a deity who is a mover of all that exists, not a creator, but a mover, a maintainer, if you will, of all that exists. And that from that, we will prove that that deity is unitary, that he is one and only one, 
And from that, we will demonstrate that God is non-corporeal. And that's the difference that I have, says the Rambam, with the Mutakalima. And I just want to read to you something that he states that, um, you know, starting with the bottom of page uh, 180, he says, for according to me, the correct way, which is the method of demonstration about which there can be no doubt, is to establish the existence and the oneness of the deity and the negation of corporeality through the methods of the philosophers, which methods are founded upon the doctrine of the eternity of the world. This is not because I believe in the eternity of the world or because I concede this point to the philosophers, but because it is through this method that the demonstration becomes valid and perfect certainty is obtained with regard to those three things. And those three things that the Rambam is referring to is the existence of God, his oneness, and his being non-corporeal. And all this without making a judgment upon the world's being eternal or created in time. That's not our foundational premise, how the world came into existence. That's not our basis for a belief in God. Thereupon, when these three great and sublime problems have been validated for us through a correct demonstration, we will return to the question of the creation of the world in time, and we shall enounce with regard to it all the argumentation that is possible. Now, the Rambam is giving a sort of a preview of how he's going to explain creation using a methodology that is also different from the Mutakalimun. Even though the Rambam has to concede that the world was created, that's what with it's a foundation, it's, it's certainly foundational in our faith that God created the world. Um, but at the same time, he's going to depart from the way that the Mutakalimun explain how God created the world, that at one point in time there was nothing, and that at one point in time nothing turned into something. The Rambam is not going to agree with that. The Rambam is rather going to suggest to us when we start learning section two, uh, and we get into this discussion a little bit further, is that at the moment of creation, not only did God create matter and all that exists in the physical world, but that God also created time. It's almost like a, um, a sort of something that you would uh, hear a, a modern astrophysicist be discussing that before creation, there was neither time nor space. And so therefore, the Rambam feels that that's a much more acceptable approach. And the reason why he feels that's more acceptable is because the Rambam believes in the ultimate transcendence of God, who does not insert himself into time-based reality. Okay, and that's really a more advanced topic for, for the future. But then I want us to continue and read the bottom of page 181, where the Rambam writes, as to this my method, it is as I shall describe to you in a general way now. Namely, I will say, the world cannot be either eternal or created in time. In other words, both theories of how the, the origin of the universe are both riddled with problems. And I think I pointed this out to you last week when we read a section from Rabbi Huda Halevi's Kuzari. Because if it is created in time, it undoubtedly, I'm sorry, the world cannot be but cannot but be either eternal or created in time. In other words, either possibility is is real. It is it is completely possible that the world was created, and it's also completely possible that the world has eternally existed when we just think about it conceptually. If it is created in time, meaning if there was a bria, if there was a creation, um, it undoubtedly has a creator who created it in time. 
And it is therefore very simple to demonstrate, if, if you can show that the world was created, you can also demonstrate, ergo, there is a creator. For it is a first intelligible that what has appeared at a certain moment in time has not created itself in time, and that its creator is other than itself. Accordingly, the creator who created the world in time is the deity. But if, however, the world is eternal, which is what the Aristotelians claim, it follows necessarily because of this and that proof that there is an existent other than all the bodies to be found in the world, an existent who is not a body and not a force in a body, and who is one, permanent, and uh, and nitzchi. Pines uses a, a fancy word, but it means that God is eternal. In other words, the Rambam's point is that you are not obligated to believe in creation in order to infer the existence of a supreme deity. You can infer the existence of a supreme deity even if you believe that the world has always existed as it is now and there was never a point of creation. Who has no cause and who's becoming subject to change is impossible. Accordingly, he is a deity. Thus it has become manifest to you that the proofs for the existence and the oneness of the deity and his not being a body ought to be procured from the starting point afforded by the supposition of the eternity of the world meaning that there's no need for us to assume that there was creation. You can even infer God's existence, his unity, and his non-corporeality, even if you believe the world has, has existed eternally. For in this way, the demonstration will be perfect, both if the world is eternal and if it is created in time. For this reason, you will always find that whenever, in what I have written in the books of jurisprudence, I happen to mention the foundations and start upon establishing the existence of the deity, I establish it by discourses that adopt the way of the doctrine of the eternity of the world. I use the same argumentation and methodology as the Aristotelians who believe in the eternity of the world. Not because I believe in the eternity of the world, but that I wish to establish in our belief the existence of God may be exalted through a demonstrative method as to which there is no disagreement in any respect. Thus, we shall not cause the true opinion, which is of immense importance, to be supported by a foundation that everyone can shake and wish to destroy, while other men think that it has never been constructed. This method is particularly justified in view of the fact that these philosophic proofs concerning the three problems in question, meaning God's existence, his unity, and his non-corporeality, are derived from the nature of existence that can be perceived and is not as denied except with a view to safeguarding certain opinions. And what he means by those last few words is, that it is much more satisfying and philosophically sound to prove God's existence, his unity, and his non-corporeality based on our observation of what exists right now and not based upon a singular historical event that may or, or, or may not have ever actually occurred and that we cannot prove occurred. So therefore, to use creation as your linchpin for your entire philosophy of God the Rambam feels that that's weak because proving creation is not something that can easily be done, and it is subject to much, to much refutation. And later on, the Rambam really elaborates on this point. He says later on on page 183, if you accept the mutakalimun logic and you feel that it's sound, good for you, he basically says. That's great, wonderful, more power to you. But there's no reason for you to necessarily accept the argument for creation based on logic. It might even be better for you 
to accept the premise of creation based upon the voice of authority. And what, what do we mean by the voice of authority? We mean the fact that the Torah says it and that it was passed down prophetically to Moses. And this is an important point that we'll, we'll be coming back to quite often. In a lot of Christian theology, there is this constant tension between accepting doctrinal principles of faith based on um, reason versus authority. Reason versus authority is sort of the way that the dichotomy is set up by philosophers like Abelard and Anselm and things like that. In other words, why do we accept the faith claims of our faith? Do we accept it based upon the fact that they are logical and we can derive these claims through reason? Or do we accept them based on the voice of authority, which basically says it was proclaimed by God on high and it is not for us to question it? So this tension exists in many, many different faiths, including within Judaism as well. The Rambam's contention is that it is not only virtuous to base one's faith on reason more than authority, but that it is necessary if one wishes to reach completion as a human being, to utilize their intellect to be able to prove the, the faith claims of Judaism and of the Torah. But there are certain points such as the claim of creation, which perhaps would be better served to be accepted based upon the voice of authority instead of the voice of reason. This is one of those exceptions to the rule where the Rambam says our belief in creation is not something that can be logically proved demonstrably better than the eternity of the universe, the, uh, you know, theory, as Aristotle claimed. And therefore, it, it would be better, in his opinion, to accept the story of creation based on authority more than based on reason. Um, and the, the, the problem that he has with the argumentation of the Mutakalimun is their presentation of creation necessitates a major upheaval in the natural order at the time of creation. And the, and the Rambam says, as an Aristotelian who believes in a certain consistency of nature, I find that highly problematic that there was this huge upheaval at the time of creation. As I mentioned, the Rambam will accept creation, but a different conception of creation of, of not only space, but also of time, which will mitigate the, the harshness of this Mutakalimun view. And furthermore, the Rambam is, maintains, and we discussed this, we touched on this, and we're going to touch on this also when we get into chapter 73 much more extensively, the Mutakalimun were atomists, which means they believed that the entire world is made up of small little fragments of existence and that time is fragmented as well. There is no con uh, continuum of time, but rather everything is broken down into smaller components so that if we, if we think about it conceptually, this moment is completely disparate and separated from the moment that came before it. As such, the world and you know all of existence is extremely malleable and elastic because if everything is constantly ceasing to exist and then being recreated, and that according to the Mutakalimun, we are simply just, you know, just by analogy, you have different frames of a film, you know, on celluloid. And each frame is a separate uh, uh, entity, a, sep a separate packet of existence 
that is not connected to the frame that comes before it or comes after it, then anything can happen. And there's no reason why everything that exists as it is today should be the same thing in, in five seconds from now. And therefore the Mutakalimun allow for the existence or for the rise of miracles and a complete departure from the order of nature because they feel that nature is completely ephemeral because everything is constantly changing from moment to moment. And as such, this runs completely contrary to the Rambam's worldview as an Aristotelian, that there is a connection to all of nature from the beginning to the end. It's, it's completely sequential and, and fluid and, uh, and, uh, and not at all digital, but rather analog, that everything runs into each other. And that what existed five seconds ago is the same thing that exists now, and it's the same thing that will exist in five seconds from now. And therefore, there, you, there has to be an abidance, there has to be a, a compliance to the rules of nature, because nothing changes so dynamically on its own, and God doesn't work that way. And that's the other problem that he has with the Mutakalimun. Um, he says, later on, I will argue for a creation that doesn't radically depart as much from Aristotelian physics, and we'll get to that later. And then finally, the Rambam says, when I present the arguments, both of the Mutakalimun and the Aristotelians, I will not be providing, he says, a full series of premises and argumentation. In other words, if you look through some of the philosophy of the Mutakalimun, you will discover that it is extremely extensive and that it would take several lifetimes to fully unpack all of the methods of argumentation that the Mutakalimun have presented to arrive at their conclusions. The Rambam feels that so much of it is distorted and really like this, you know, going, you know, uh, all in all different directions and you have to bend logic like a pretzel in order to arrive at the conclusions of the Mutakalimun. And therefore, there's really no point in my telling you how they got at these conclusions, but I will simply present to you in the next couple of chapters the conclusions of the Mutakalimun and what brought them to their conclusions based on their desire to arrive at creation, the existence of a creator, the unitary nature of that creator, and the non-corporeal nature of that creator. Okay? And similarly, when I present to you the Aristotelian view, the proof of God as a deity, as a unitary deity, and as a non-corporeal deity, I will also not be... Uh, going through an entire full comprehensive series of argumentations to arrive at the conclusions of that of, of those three premises, because that also would take too much time, he says, and it's easily referenced in the textbooks that are readily available to you, you know, in the marketplace. And so even though the methodology of argumentation the presentation of the arguments are much more straightforward and in compliance with the laws of nature uh, from the Aristotelian point of view, but I'm not going to be presenting those either because they are readily available and we don't want it, we want to be able to preserve time. And then and then he says that my whole premise in the Moren of Uchim is that one can only prove God and his nature from an examination of what exists in our universe, not like the Mutakali Mundu who infer God's existence from creation, which we are not able to examine today. And because of this, the ensuing chapters, which conclude part one of Moren Nevuchim, will be as follows. First, I have a responsibility to explain to you what nature is. I have to go through 
at least, and we'll do that in the next chapter, chapter 72, I'm going to be discussing with you the nature of all that exists in our world, because the nature of that which exists is the basis for us to infer the existence of God and the, the nature of God. We only, our only frame of reference is that existence where we find ourselves. And so we're going to have to use that to help us define God. And therefore, I'm going to have to spend a chapter explaining nature to you. That's going to be the next chapter. Then the Rambam says in chapter, the following chapter, chapter 73, I'm going to be discussing with you the premises, there are 12 premises that the Mutakalimun set forth to be able to come to the four, uh, or to address the four issues, which is creation, which leads to the belief in a creator, which believes leads to a belief in the unity of that creator, which leads to a conclusion of the non-corporeal nature of that creator, those four issues. So that'll be in chapter 73. And finally, in the concluding chapters, 74, 75, and 76, I'll be, uh, I'll be discussing the Aristotelian view of how to come to the conclusions about God, the three conclusions of God's existence, his unity, and his non-corporeality. And then finally, in the last chapter of Moren Vuchim of the first section, I will be telling you how I view it, you know, after I presented to you the view of the Mutakalimun, which I will largely reject, after I presented to you the Aristotelian view, which I largely accept, I'll present to you now the purely Maimonidean view, which will probably be like a modified Aristotelianism uh, that will lead us to the conclusion of these three major premises, which was really, really the whole objective of the whole first section of Morenavuchim, is to help us understand God as best as is humanly possible. And so this is how the Rambam concludes uh, chapter 71, really sort of laying out a roadmap for where he's going in these five, in the, the, the five final chapters of Morenavuchim of the first section to help us really understand where he's going and why he's presenting the things the way he's presenting them. The last thing I'll leave you with is in the handout that I sent out today in the course description and that I put on the Facebook group, Shi'ur in Morenavuchim, and I would encourage you that if you would like to follow along the Shi'ur, that you join that Facebook group. It's called, once again, Shi'ur in Morenavuchim, perfectly free. We post before the class the handout, and you can download the, the, uh, the recording of the Shi'ur and the handout after after we give the class. Uh, if you take a look a little bit ahead, in Morenavuchim Part 2, Chapter 24, the Rambam makes a very important distinction between our belief that God is non-corporeal versus our belief that the world was created. In, in other words, um, there's a very important distinction to be drawn here, which I think is a is very, very helpful to help us frame and understand the Rambam's whole presentation over here. We know that in Aristotelianism, the belief is in the eternity of the universe. Why do we reject a belief in the eternity of the universe? So the Rambam wants to point out the reason why we reject it is not purely based upon scriptural demonstration. I don't reject the fact that the universe has existed eternally simply because the Torah says, Bereshit Elokim Because if that was my basis for rejecting a philosophical truth, then I would have a quandary about why I believe that God is non-corporeal. If you subject 
God's incorporeality with biblical text, you will be faced immediately with a quandary because there are so many passages of text in the in the Bible which suggest which suggest that God indeed is corporeal. Because there are so many examples of this where the Torah says that God took out the Jews, biyad chazaka with a strong arm and outstretched hand, and so many other descriptions of God as having some kind of body. Now the Rambam devoted the entire first section of Moren Nevuchim to explaining these passages metaphorically. They are not to be meant to be taken literally with hands like physical hands, but rather God does not have a body. And the Rambam therefore says, the reason why I reject the eternity of the universe is not because of scripture, because if I was forced to accept the eternity of the universe philosophically, I would have found a way to reinterpret scripture, to be speaking perhaps metaphorically, just like I reinterpret scripture to be taken metaphorically when it contradicts God's non-corporeality. So what's the difference between the two? The answer is that God's non-corporeality in the Rambam's view, is ironclad and absolutely factual, and that has been proven through logic and philosophical proofs. The eternity of the universe, however, is a theory and, and remains a theory in the Aristotelian world. It is never something which has been demonstrably proven in the same way that God's non-corporeality has been proven, and, and therefore, um, if something is so true that it is beyond any kind of refutation scientifically, and scripture seems to be contradicting that, we have to figure out a way to reinterpret scripture. But if there is something that is philosophically presented, but has not been demonstrated, has not been absolutely proven, but remains only a theory, then it is not the incumbent upon us to completely reinterpret scripture to accommodate something which has not been philosophically proven. And I think that's an important distinction because the Rambam, while at the same time that he's working with Aristotelianism, cert certainly reserves some level of distance from completely embracing those sections of, of Aristotelian philosophy that are not absolutely scientific fact uh, in in you know in the science of his day, now of course we're speaking using medieval uh, uh, nomenclature, medieval terminology. The science of our day is completely different. But I just wanted to present to you the methodology of the Rambam so we have an appreciation for it. This is where we'll hold it for today. I thank you for joining us, and I hope you were able to get something from it. We will continue Be'ezrat Hashem next week when we start Chapter 72. Take care now.